Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Dot edu slash podcast. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never thought I'd care about gardening until I bought a house in the suburbs. But now I find myself in conversations about liquid fertilizer and I wonder, am I the fertilizer guy now? <laughs> no, no way. Everyone knows the ratio between phosphorus and nitrogen, right? Yeah, I'm still totally cool. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music welcome to sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media i'm jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the chicago sun times and i'm greg cott i write about rock and roll for the chicago tribune today on the world's only rock and roll talk show jim and i are going to get a visit from veteran roots rocker steve Earle. Plus, we'll review the new albums from Gnarls Barkley and the Tours, and Greg will add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. For the benefit of Mr. Kite, there will be a show tonight on trampoline. Greg, can you name the fellow who played harmonica on that classic Beatles track? I have a wild guess <laughs> who it might be. It was Neil Aspinall, the man that George Harrison, when the Beatles were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988, called the Fifth Beatle. Now, of course, there have been about 350 Fifth <laughs> Beatles, right? Neil Aspinall actually has a pretty good claim for it. In addition to uh, playing harmonica on uh, For the Benefit of Mr. Kite, he rounded up and corralled and got the permissions from all the people on the cover of uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, that famous collage. He was the Beatles' right-hand man, management and business-wise. Ran Apple, their management and record company, production company, for years and years and years until only last year when he retired. He just died of lung cancer at age 66. A lot of uh, Beatles fans blamed him for the very slow archival release schedule. He was the man responsible for Anthology, those two projects. That was the version of Mr. Kite from Anthology 2. But, uh, you know, he had a tough job. He had to make both Paul McCartney, Yoko Ono, and, uh, you know, Harrison when he was alive and now Harrison's estate. You know, make all of them happy. There remain a lot of Holy Grail unreleased things in the vaults. People are speculating now maybe they'll come out. Aspinall is one of the only Beatles insiders who never wrote his memoirs, said, if I did, it would only come out after my death. But to the best of everyone's knowledge, he didn't write that book before he died. You know, Jim, he was there from the beginning, and they always had an affection for this guy. The Beatles were able to uh, cut out a lot of people in their lives at various phases of their career. But Neil Aspinall was the one guy who was there at the very beginning, and he was there at the end. He was the guy driving him to gigs when nobody knew who the Beatles were in Liverpool. Yeah. So they had a great deal of affection for this guy. When they brought in that Alan Klein guy, who was one of the you know biggest <laughs> sharks in the business at the time, to clean house over the Apple empire in the early 70s, John Lennon specifically said, 
leave Neil Aspinall alone. You can you can fire everybody else, but Neil Aspinall needs to stay. And he's been with him ever since. And, you know, his crowning glory was that anthology project in the mid-'90s. As you said, Jim, there, there's some controversy about whether that was any good or not. But the fact that he oversaw that and was entrusted by the Beatles to do that really makes that claim of the fifth Beatle ring true. The only other two, I think, that are even in that category for fifth Beatle, Brian Epstein, their first manager, and uh, George Martin, their producer. There you have it, Neil Aspinall, dead at 66. That's the group Gnarls Barkley back with their second album called The Odd Couple and a track called Run. Big news this week, Jim, because uh, here's a band that sold 1.3 million records in 2006, owned that year with the song called Crazy, and is now back with their second album, the follow-up. Originally scheduled for release April 8th, it was moved up three weeks because the internet traffic for this record was so great. Who are Gnarls Barkley? CeeLo Green an Atlanta-based rapper in, in the group Goody Mob before he made two wildly eclectic solo albums that were well-reviewed but really didn't sell a whole lot, and DJ Danger Mouse, best known prior to this for his work with the Grey album, the groundbreaking mashup between the Beatles' White Album and Jay-Z's Black Album, as well as his production work for Gorillaz, but achieved a new level of notoriety and fame with Gnarls Barkley. Now they're back with a follow-up called The Odd Couple, and here's a track from the record, Who's Gonna Save My Soul, on Sound Opinions. Got some bad news this morning Which in turn made my day When this someone spoke I listened All of a sudden has less and less to say going to save my soul by gnarles barkley from their second album the odd couple 
Greg, the line in that song that kills me, and that's the key to the whole album, is when uh, CeeLo sings, got some bad news this morning, which in turn made my day. <laughs> I don't think we could find an artist who loves to wallow in the decadent, dark, depraved, and depressed <laughs> more than CeeLo outside of the gothic realm. You know what I mean? He is a guy who loves horror movie ambiance, imagery, dark night of the soul kind of stuff. Does it with a big smile on his face. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget that every time we saw the odd couple on stage, they were dressed either as tennis pros <laughs> or as circus clowns. I mean, these guys truly are an odd couple. The key to understanding this record is to remember that the first one was, I always heard, a St. Elsewhere as a concept album akin to the dark side of the moon, recounting all the many things that drive a man over the edge, all the things that make you nuts. And Crazy was atypically effervescent. You know, it jumped out of that album, but it was a, an entire record that was best appreciated as a whole. And I think that's absolutely true as well of The Odd Couple. This is a, a, a more down-tempo album, but a brilliant album. Much of the sonic clue, I think, comes from that Northern Soul movement of the mid-60s that was concurrent with the mod thing coming up. This was the period that all went into the psychedelic explosion that was just about to happen. This weird soul and this dark moodiness. And, you know, it's no wonder that David Gilmore of Pink Floyd loves this band, because this is where he came from. I think Burton is taking all of his clues from that period, and they're doing brilliant, brilliant stuff with it. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, this is a darker record, if that's possible, than St. Elsewhere. And it, it, various times he's embodying a serial killer, a drug pusher in that song, Who's Gonna Save My Soul, which I think is a brilliant song. It reminds me a lot of that James Carr classic, uh, The Dark End of the Street. Mm. I mean, it's a dark night of the soul. And at the same time, it's there's a complexity to it because he's chastising himself in that song for being so consumed with his own problems that he can't recognize the same needs in other people. I mean, th yeah. there's levels of writing going on in CeeLo Green's songwriting that I think is puts him in his own category in rhythm and blues. Danger Mouse is doing these kind of retro grooves, but updating them for the 21st century. I like the fact that even though we hear elements of that northern soul sound that you're talking about, we hear a little bit of a Motown beat here, yeah. or we hear a little bit of a British invasion sound on another track, I don't feel like we're listening to those records again. I feel like this is a fresh take on that, most of all because their emphasis is still on the melody. Even though it's still a slower, darker record, the melodies are still there. These guys love their melodies. And I love the ambiguity that CeeLo Green brings to it. Mm. There's no crazy style hit on this record. And I'm wondering how it's going to play with the public because this is a complex record. I don't know if complexity is going to be able to sell in the marketplace these days, but I don't care. This is a great record, and it's the kind of record that's going to, going to be around for a while. If no one else loves it, we love it. We rate things here. Uh, buy it, burn it, trash it. I'm gathering for both of us. This is a very enthusiastic buy it. Absolutely, Jim. Greg, Steve Earle is a man you and I have talked to many times. Always a fascinating interview. We're huge fans of his music. He's been incredibly prolific. Fits in no genre easily. He's country. He's rock. He's power pop. He was on tour with his wife, Allison Moore. We got him to stop here in Sound Opinions. Been busy lately. Moved from Nashville to New York City. We had him play us some songs and uh, have a chat with us. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My co-host is Jim DeRogatis, and we're here in the studio with Steve Earle. Steve, welcome to the show. How are you? He is accompanied by his wife, Allison Moore, who is a recording artist in her own right. Hi, Allison. Hey. Glad to have you here. Steve, you're kind of like the Renaissance man of music, uh, singer-songwriter, talk show host, novelist. Playwright? Let's well, not yeah. Let, plays, right? Playwright, and let's not forget uh, acting. Acting on the well, that's, wire? That, that's not acting because I play a redneck recovering addict that requires no no acting. Uh, <laughs> my radio show is not really a talk show anymore. I mean, it's like uh, since I moved, I moved from Air America to you know, a, a satellite outlet, and, and it's like before I was sort of the only music program. Me and Chuck D had the only two music programs on a, a largely talk network, and now I'm basically just because of time, I'm, I'm, I basically just – 
spin records and beat people about the head and shoulders with my opinion about <laughs> about certain periods in the, the history of American songwriting. So it's, well, a, it's monologue, a, like, a monologue is still a talk show. Yeah, Steve. well, that's I guess. I guess I talk a lot. There's no doubt about it. The, the breaks get longer and longer the better I get. At I'd it. like to see. I'd like to see a tour with Steve and Chuck D. Oh my God. Oh, uh, we we've talked about that. I mean, we we did stuff together at Air America when we were there together, and we talked about it. Uh, uh, he's, you know, we get along great. Your world and Chuck D's world are getting closer together based on this uh, last record, Washington Square Serenade. There's, uh, you know, full-fledged electronic hip-hop beats on this record. Well, yeah, there, and it, it, the way it ar- I arrived at it, it's, it there is a, an attitude that I've sort of always had. I've always considered the best of hip-hop to be folk music. So I was sort of returning to why, how I started, which was there's only one electric guitar on the record, and that was me emulating a, a solo that Bruce Langhorne played on a Bob Dylan record, <laughs> you know. So it uh, it was just it was this really organic process. I'd moved to New York; my life had changed a lot. I wanted to work by myself because I toured so much that the pre-production process on my records became soundcheck, which meant that the other guys in the band had their fingerprints on whatever I was writing. I'd end up effectively writing for that band, and I needed to not do that this time i just for me creatively needed to keep it to to make a more intimate record so i started out doing that and originally i didn't have the recording studio in nashville you know at my disposal anymore so i you know i went out and bought a computer and loaded it with pro tools and started making demos on my own and i immediately discovered how democratic it is it is pretty easy to learn and i got to the point i mean you know i've I've like i'm sure i I, I recorded stuff on other people's records in other cities as much as I got stuff onto my own hard drive, but, it, you know, just trying to, by trial and error. But but the process started, and I th- what I thought were, were demos, and the writing process turned out to be the beginnings of the record. So you just sit down and start making noise. You're not worried about reading the manuals. There's that, and, you know, <laughs> and which is, that's the thing. That's the, that's the deal about a lot of the coolest stuff in hip-hop is, is the same thing as, you know, a, in 1958, a, a guy, you know, like going to NYU, buying a banjo and trying to figure it out for himself. It's the same thing when somebody buys a $1,000 piece of digital gear and just starts pushing buttons and throws We were talking away. last week, Steve. I just <laughs> yeah. love this idea of if we could go back in time and now see a picture of Woody Guthrie with a sampler around his neck that says, right. this machine kills fascists. Well, no, no, yeah, the, the one thing you won't see is a piano. I mean, I, I there was a piano in my house. I grew up with it, but you couldn't hitchhike with it. So that eliminated <laughs> piano right off the bat because I, I left home when I was like 16. So... So it, the portability of guitar, I think, is part of its part of its you know it, the reason that it endures. You have one of those portable uh, guitar machines in your in your hand there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I old, do. I do. Why I don't do. you give us a song? Yeah, this is sort of uh, well, this is kind of what the whole deal's about. City and won't be back no more. Won't be back no more. Boss won't see me around. Goodbye, guitar town. Go side on the highway, forces on the wind, telling me we may never pass this way again. Voices on the highway. Beckoning like a long lost friend. Fairly well, I'm bound to roll. This ain't never been my home. Strange in my mirror, lines around my eyes, string around my finger, but I don't remember why. Don't remember why, boy, don't remember how Goodbye, guitar town 
deep in my home Blue dog on my floorboard Redhead by my side Cross the mighty Hudson River To New York City side Redhead by my side Boy, sweetest thing Tennessee Blues by Steve Earle on Sound Opinions. Coming up, Greg and I will continue our discussion with Steve and his wife, Allison Moore, and then we'll review the new album from Jack White and the Tours. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I was born my papa's son wandering out a smoking gun Some of you would live through me and light me up and throw away the key. Or just find a place to hide away and hope that I'll just go away. Huh. And I feel alright. I feel alright tonight. I feel alright. I feel alright tonight. Precious contraband and ancient tales from distant lands. Conquerors and concubines and conjurers from darker times. A betrayal and conspiracy, sacrilege and heresy. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to continue our conversation with Steve Earle. And I asked Steve about making his new album, Washington Square Serenade, which seemed to be a radical left turn for him after a really prolific period in his career. Living in a city that never sleeps Heart keep the time to a thousand beats Singing in languages I don't speak Living in a city of immigrants And you were on a roll. Six albums in six years, I think. Pretty yeah, I made, I made a bunch. And they were good records. And then you just blow it up. Move from Tennessee, move out of your recording studio, go to New York. I well, mean, I mean, it wasn't like I just decided I'm going to change everything here. It wasn't some of, you know, I'm not convinced that I'm in control of things as I was when I, you know, first started making records. It was a lot of other things that were happening, and it was a matter of, like, trying to figure out which way the wind was blowing. And, and you know, you can tell sometimes when there's getting ready to be changes in your life. And I think this was one of those those moments when it was the thing to do was to sort of, you know, pay attention to what was going on and embrace that. Because <laughs> a lot of the, the recording studio ended organically because Ray Kennedy and I were partners in the business, but not the real estate. And Ray needed to to, to get rid of the real estate. And I wanted to move to New York City for years, but, you know, in fact... Mary Martin, this friend of mine, Mary's like she worked for Albert Grossman when she was like, like eighteen years old. And Dylan's she, manager, yeah, and she was Canadian, and and she she introduced Dylan to the band. She's the one that found that found that band. She said, "Well, Steve Earl, it's a shame that you never moved to New York because it would have been really good for you, and now you're too old." And 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 I was thirty one, you know, so it was like it irritated me all these years, but. I met and married a girl with a job, and so it became financially feasible to live in New York City. And and so all the and, and Allison and I, I think, when we got married, we both had been in Nashville for long enough that being someplace that neither one of us had lived just sort of gave us a, you know, a city to ourselves. Was this radical for you, Allison? Because I mean, Nashville has had its problems with Steve for a long time. But 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 you're a nicer person overall. <laughs> <laughs> they, huh. Nashville didn't hate you, right? You don't know me very well. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Well, he yeah, walks um, around Nashville with a target on it. You know, half yeah. the people want to kiss him, and half the people want to shoot him. Well, I think um, you know, if you know anything about my my life or my history, nothing's that radical when it comes down mm-hmm. right down to it. I've you know, I've uh, I've had I've had a life, so. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, at the ripe old age of 35, I'm like, hmm, wonder what's going to happen next. It'll surprise me. I don't know. So you were um, ready to leave Nashville as well? Yeah, you know, I, I like Nashville. I still do. I still enjoy spending time there, and we still have a house there. But um, it's nice to get outside of it because the thing about Nashville is it can become so small mm. and so concerned with itself that you can, if you live there full time, you can sort of forget, oh, there's a big, big world out there that doesn't worry about these three streets. And when we're saying Nashville and yeah. Nashville, we mean Nashville the place, but also Nashville the mindset of the recording industry, right? Yeah, it can just be very small. Yeah. You know. Two pretty good songwriters here in this room, Alison Moore, Steve Earle. Uh, is there a separation of church and state at the, <laughs> at the Moore Earle? household in terms of songwriting. I mean, does any of that sort of bleed into each other, or do you try to keep a totally separate, you know, uh, entity when it comes to your art and, and, and creating music? We probably try to, but you can't. And, and we live in such a small space. We live in, a, in, in New York in a one-bedroom apartment. We still have the house in Tennessee, and we're there, and some, but not very much. And we're in a bus a lot of the time, which is even smaller than the apartment in New York. So you can't. I'm, what she does influences what I do, and what I do influences what she does. And we have to divide up time because she was writing – I was writing a record. She was doing pre-production on a record, and I was writing a novel. I had to join the writer's room, for instance. That's something that has to happen in New York City. So I had to find a space outside mm. of, mm-hmm. of my apartment to, to, to write prose. And I don't know. Um, we're, we're pretty like-minded, but we do absorb a lot from each other, I think. I mean, you know. So, Allison, can you tell him when he's written a crap song? No. I would, I, I, well, first of all, I don't necessarily think he's capable of that. If, if, I think if, if Steve starts to write a crap song, he catches it pretty quick and backs up. I think um, that's one of the things that happens when you get older as you start. Yeah. You know. You know, I think that, that he's probably learned enough to, uh, to know when he's got something. So, no. You, you weren't real keen and, on satellite radio when I was No, writing. but you know what? You pulled it off. It shocked me. And I was like, oh, I was, I was, because when he first started it, I was like, I don't know. Satellite radio. Because I, like, I have a thing about, um, dated references in songs. It always mm-hmm. bothers me because I think, you know, if, you know, something should last. It should be a classic. It should be able to be, you know, timeless. And I thought, oh, that's kind of Well, you were partially right. Springsteen know. was writing exactly the same song at exactly the same time we discovered a few months later. Uh, yeah. they, they really are almost exactly the same. But he time. pulled it off and, and, you know, taught me. That's cool. How about another song? Yeah, this is... Uh, we... Uh, I've done a lot of duets, you know, for records and... Um, Got fascinated with that that idea of songs that are constructed to be duets for men and women to sing together, for me and women to sing together anyway. And this is, um, for this record, she came up with a great title when I was stuck. I was going, I was sort of all over the place. She bailed me out on this one for sure. Ready? One, two, one, two, three, four. Comes up on another day, my love. 
Beautiful. Let that chord hang in the air for a bit. That'll go on forever. Yeah, I like that. That's nice. Yeah, it's, these are good guitars. <laughs> <laughs> Days aren't long enough. Uh, beautiful duet from uh, the Steve Earl record, Washington Square Boulevard, with his wife, Allison Moore, on harmony vocals. So, Steve, you are uh, you have a reputation, whether deserved or not, uh-huh. as a pretty prickly guy. A, <laughs> really? And yet, <laughs> some of the loveliest music you've ever written on this record. There's a couple of beautiful... Ballads. Sparkle and shine, that, me. that song right yeah. there. I don't know. Has Allison softened you up a little bit, or what's going well, on? I, mean, <laughs> I heard a quote from your son the other day. Uh, somebody asked him in an interview how, how you were doing. They said, "Oh, he's fat and he's fat and happy again." <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really happy, and and I, but I've never been anybody that you no. know is any. <laughs> <laughs> I he meant it with love. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, see, he just got back on it. <laughs> I know. I know. I don't yeah. even. You're. You're. She. She. She refers to Justin sometimes. What is it you call him? My stepdaughter. <laughs> See, she said I was a good accent. There you go, <laughs> my stepdaughter. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm. Um, this is largely an album of love songs for Allison Moore in New York City, and you know, it's big, big changes in my life. It's not apolitical. It's less political than the last couple of records. Um, I, I never thought that you had to be miserable to make great art. I mean, I think. The only requirement is if you if you suffer, then that should be in your art. Well, we are talking to Steve Earle and his wife, Allison Moore, on Sound Opinions. Steve, one more area to touch on before you give us a song and we let you go. Here's a political question I haven't asked you. <laughs> and I ran the article we did based on an interview last week. Right. And I got about four emails. Said, you got it. You, you dropped the ball, dear goddess. You didn't ask Earl how he wrote The Revolution Starts Now and sold it to Chevy. Well, you know, the the deal with – with that song was when I got, I'd never ever used one of my song, allow one of my songs to be used in an ad ever before. One of the things that's happening is the business has changed, and songwriters, if you'll notice, are um, are you, you're hearing a lot more people that you never thought you'd hear their songs in ads and ads. And the reason is that the business has changed, and there's just not as much mailbox money coming out of the record industry because the record sure. industry fell apart. But I can see, I can see Sparkle and Shine. If you said I had to sell it to Fantastic, you know. Well, no, 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 no. But but, but, but but this was a song about starting the revolution, Steve. Yeah, I know, but but you're missing the point. The deal was I'd never done it at all. So the question for me was not what song. They asked for The Revolution Starts Now. The ad agency did. And the way that works, you have to understand there's a music clearance. There's a business that does nothing but, but pitch music to ad agencies that's first in line. Then there's the ad agency, and then there's you know Chevy or whoever the client is. And we were in Spain... And we were basically we were staying in a friend's house in Barcelona and planning our wedding, and and we got this call. So we had the whole month there to talk about it. The truth of the matter is, Neil Young's been rich since he was twenty years old, and you know it's it's it was one of those things. I was getting, um, I'm getting older, and I was offered the. It was a lot of money that, that it would have been. <laughs> it was a huge amount of money, and and so I said no. And then they came back and they offered even. More money. And oh, so are we talking like buy a condo in Girona money? More money than well, that. Oh, okay. Right. Know, just, so, just for a frame so, of reference. So it, it, it's it's we're talking about we're talking about a pension. To me, it was the coolest thing about it was is that it was the revolution starts now <laughs> yeah. because I went back and when they made the second offer, I said, "Can I have it?" written into this that they can't change any of the content. In other words, it can never never change a lyric. And that they all, it all, you know, they use my lyrics in the song, no matter what they do, and they use that chorus intact. And they said, sure. Then, uh, because of some stuff that just had to do with 
you know, who gets paid for what. And it was somebody that I, that I worked with at the time that was involved in the recording basically demanded some money that the ad agency wasn't willing to pay. So it was shut down. And so I actually ended up making $25,000 when it was all over with because they pulled it. It actually only played for like four weeks. It, it, it premiered, I remember, on the, the, the All-Star game. But it was one of those things, and I, I thought, well, great, that's just my luck. You know, finally get ready to sell out and nobody's <laughs> buying, you know. so it's They it's, sell it back. It, yeah. it's, one, it's one of those things that I – and I don't know what I would do faced with it again. Uh, I sold all my publishing uh, up to this record. To me, it was – the whole point was, you know, it was about doing it at all, making that decision in the first place. And I think, you know, I definitely consider it now because I sort of have to. It's sort of how you make a one of the ways that you make a living as a songwriter now. Is and the other part of it was, it was kind of cool to me. The coolest thing was that it was the revolution starts now, and it's the I thought it snuck in a subliminal message, and I almost yeah. got away with it. It's sort of the part of the business model now in the music industry. It's like. You know, oh, the, one of the best things that can happen is for you to get a commercial. It used to be there used to be such a stigma attached to it. Oh, you sell out. You know, you're uh, you know you're uh, working for the man. You're you know advertising for iPods. But now it's like, oh God, if I could get an iPod commercial, it'd be great. Well, yeah. the, so. the ad agencies appear to have better taste than the record companies now. Well, uh, I mean, you, I you think see cooler music on the, the radio well, the, the ad agencies have yeah. more money and the people that yeah. you know there were not everybody that worked in the record industry like back when they had money you, you get what you pay for and, and the people that are really smart that were working for record labels are working for ad agencies now the people that really had taste and the people that you know the music business is made up of a lot of people it's made up of people that actually you know can make music and it's also made up the rest of the people are get into it basically because they're fans you know because mm-hmm. they're people that own more than 10 records you know they're the people that don't buy their records at walmart that's always been sort of the the catch you know? i'm just still waiting for the revolution steve i'm, I'm ready well you know i'm there i'm ready to go to the barricades you, if you, with you if, man. you if you listen really closely to that song what that song is about is the fact that the revolution's going on it's been going on mm-hmm. with you or without you and if you like if you any day that you pay attention and just grab on that the revolution's going well why do you think we have you on our radio show whenever you come to town <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you gonna play us one more song yeah we have i to think i think i changed uh i changed gears here sir Sparkle and shine, sparkle and shine. 
My baby's sparkling and shining Everyone knows she's fine Everyone knows she's mine What a great tune, Sparkle and Shine by Steve Earle Album number 12, Washington Square, Serenade Thank you for coming by, Steve, and Allison as well. Thank you. Thanks. When you walk through the garden, gotta watch your back. To share your sound opinions, give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back after a short break on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the new record from the Tours. Gonna save your soul. He's got the fire and the fury at his command. Well, you don't have to worry if you hold on to Jesus' hand. And we'll all be safe from Satan when the thunder rolls. You gotta help me keep the devil. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. are the Tours with their single Salute Your Solution, the first from their new album, Consolers of the Lonely. Greg, it's uh, appropriate that we're reviewing both Gnarls Barkley and the Tours at the same time. Both of them made their debuts in a big way in 2006. Both of them were projects that featured two people who uh, were unlikely combinations coming together and who had accomplished a lot on their own before they came together. Jack White, of course, is the leader of the White Stripes. With the Tours, he banded together with Brendan Benson, longtime cult favorite power pop hero out of Detroit. It seemed uh, to everyone that uh, Jack, after the well-defined blues rock minimalism of the White Stripes, was looking for a different showcase where he could stretch out a bit. Kind of a garage rock power pop band putting the emphasis on the songwriting. It's easy to forget what a great songwriter Jack White is because the White Stripes are so pared down and so minimal. Just him and his ex-wife, you know, and it's uh, the last couple of albums. They've added a few more touches, but boy, that's as bare bones as it gets. Tours was a little bit more blown up, a little more Beatle-esque, if you will. Now we have the second album. 2006 was their debut, just like Gnarls Barkley. Broken Boy Soldiers made a lot of noise. Didn't give us a crazy like Gnarls did, but certainly uh, they were a lot of news in 2006. What have they got for the follow-up? Let's play a track from Consolers of the Lonely. This is called Many Shades of Black on Sound Opinions. Go ahead, go ahead, smash it on the floor. Take whatever's left and take it with you out the door. See if I cry. If I shed a single sorry tear I can't say that it's been that great No, in fact, it's been a wasted worry here Everybody see 
Shades of Black from the Rackham Tours on Sound Opinions, a uh, an example of the uh, the wider sonic palette that Jack White is playing with on this particular group. Jim, you mentioned that he uses the Rackham Tours as as a vehicle for exploring a wider range of sounds, and and indeed, compared to the White Stripes, which is basically drums and his guitar, and was more so on that uh, last record than ever in, in a number of years. You have fiddle, you have banjo, trumpet, keyboards. Plenty of vocal harmonies on on this record. A lot of Moog. Absolutely. On this record, there's all sorts of stylistic homages. They do a spaghetti western track called The Switch and the Spur, and on Many Shades of Black, that song that we just played, that's a soul homage. With oh, that, a, that's a queen ripple well, is what that is. He had said Freddie Mercury falsetto in there, but I, you know, I would say that's a soul song as well. I think you mentioned the fact that the songwriting is going to be key to this band, and I think that's exactly where this record falls down. The songwriting is not up to par. Jack White has never been noted as being a great songwriter. What is great about him is the force of his personality and his interplay with Meg White and the White Stripes. They're two larger-than-life figures, and there's humor and eroticism there that I don't hear on this record at all. So it all comes down to the songs, and the songs just ain't there. Well, Greg, you know I love art rock, but there is certainly a lot of bad art rock. And what this is, is what Yes or Emerson, Lake, and Palmer did on uh, Topographic Oceans or Works Volume 1. This is a bad art rock record, okay? And nothing is worse than art rock when it goes bad. Uh, you know, the band made a point of saying, we don't want to release this on uh, the iTunes and other download sites because it needs to be appreciated as a whole, a whole album. We don't want you to cherry pick. And you know what? That's what bad art rock always say and you know the fact is that there are only a few very good tracks on this and the rest of it's lousy the worst experience you can have is listening to it from beginning to end because there is so much filler and so much pretension maximal bombast and useless filigree it's just wow what an awful depressing horrible record you've done a 180 on this band because you liked Broken Boy Soldiers I liked it very very much and that's a 10 song record they put out in 2006 I was lukewarm on that record but I think this record is even a fall down from that one I would have liked to have heard Broken Boy Soldiers 2 as compared to this record. It's more ambitious, but the songs aren't there. It feels rushed. They rushed this into the stores, and it feels like they rushed it out making it as yeah, well. And I'm sorry, but Fiddle and Moog Synthesizer never belong in the same song. Just never. <laughs> I mean, this is a, Buy It, Burn It, Trash is a trash it record as far as I'm concerned. I must concur. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as we can here on Sound Opinions, one of us likes to take a turn popping a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. Mr. Cod, it's yours. Thank you, Jim. This week we mentioned the odd couple, Gnarls Barkley, and it got me thinking about other odd couples in rock music. I think the tension between opposites makes for some of the best music in rock and roll, and it also creates, obviously... Fishers in a band that enables it to last only a few short years when they're absolutely at their peak. And I think that applies to the band I'm going to play and bring to the Desert Island with me. That's the Pixies. Uh, one of your favorites, Jim. I know you're not a huge fan. I and love so that's why the two band. of us are an odd couple. Absolutely. <laughs> they're, they're wonderful band, especially in their early years. I think their first few records are absolutely golden. The first great record they made was their debut album, Surfer Rosa. On that, they basically laid out exactly what they're all about. 
the key to that record in many ways, besides the fact that Joey Santiago was a was an inventive guitar player, was the yin and the yang approach between Black Francis's wild serial killer vocals and Kim Deal's beautiful harmonies. When Kim Deal, the bassist, got to sing on that particular record, it added a sort of a pop flavor to the record that it might not have had it had Black Francis been the sole singer. It's interesting that she responded to an ad. She was the only person to respond to an ad for a bass player that said, needs to combine Husker Du with Peter, Paul, and Mary. <laughs> and Kim Deal says, that's the band for me. I think the fact that she wasn't allowed to play a wider songwriting role in the band led to its breakup prematurely. I think the band could have benefited quite a bit from the Nirvana explosion of the early 90s, the alternative rock explosion. The Pixies were a huge influence on Nirvana, as Kurt Cobain mentioned many times. But they got to run the victory lap a few years ago, and I saw them at Coachella a couple of years ago. And I tell you, Jim, one of the greatest musical moments of my life was hearing Kim Deal singing the backing harmonies on this particular song, hearing those vocals echo out over the valley in California with the orange sunset reflecting on the mountains. That was like one of those moments you go, you know, I'm really glad I'm alive. I'm really glad I'm here to witness this. I'm sorry I missed that. (laughs) It was wonderful. So here's here's an example. The odd couple, Kim Deal and Black Francis doing their thing on the Pixies' Where Is My Mind on Sound Opinions. Stop. That's my Desert Island jukebox pick for this week, Where Is My Mind from the Pixies. Next week, Jim, uh, we have a discussion on how the digital music explosion has affected the way we actually listen to music. Great, we have some thanks to say. Mary Gaffney and Sarah Toulouse, our favorite recording engineers, recorded the performance by Steve Earle and Allison Moore. Our intrepid production crew is Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with some interning help from Dave Mahler. 
and uh, a guy who has no claim to be the fifth Beatle, but is definitely the 87th member of the Sound Opinions team, is uh, Southside Tori Malatia, our executive producer. In case you've missed any of our recent shows, here's a record we reviewed on Sound Opinions. Complex from Sons and Daughters. Uh, the album is called This Gift. Greg, what a great track. And really, we could have played any song on this album, and uh, it would have made me just as happy. I really thought that Sons and Daughters were a second-tier entry in that Domino Records new wave of new wave sound that uh, also brought us Franz Ferdinand, the Arctic Monkeys, Clinic. I mean, they were good, but yeah. they, you know, they were this Celtic version of X, and that's okay, but there was something missing. And here they laid bare exactly what was missing, and they filled in the blanks. Mm-hmm. You know, for one thing, the rhythms are relentless. <laughs> they can barely contain themselves from one three-minute blast to another. I think moving Bethel into a very prominent lead vocalist role was a smart move. She's got like this Debbie Harry quality, but with much more range. She's referencing all this cool kind of pop culture of the past from Sylvia Plath to 60s cinema. Mm-hmm. And along the way, the hooks are maximized. You've got suede guitarist Bernard Butler producing here and they keep building to these wonderful woo-ah-hoo chants in yeah. every song, song after song. And you want to jump up and down and scream and go woo with them and it's just i love this record i agree that the role that bernard butler played on this record cannot be underestimated i think he really brought out a pop element in this band that was sort of buried on the previous records and as you said taking some of those wordless harmonies and turning them into hooks Mm -hmm. that you can't forget later on it is a relentless record people are looking for a breather you're not going to get it on this record folks it's just going to be one slammer after another breathing is overrated (laughs) and uh what's there not to love here i mean here's a band i think was drawing on all these cool sources recognizing what was cool about roots music and updating it for a contemporary audience i I think this is the best record yet and uh, it's a buy it all the way for me double buy it greg right on sound opinions everyone's a critic now it's time to hear what you have to say new messages robert from columbia maryland i just finished listening to the much big podcast one of the things that i think was really underrated in the uh, podcast was Butch Vig's uh, drumming. I happened to see Garbage twice, the first time in '02 when they toured with uh, No Doubt. My uh, daughter won tickets to see them at the god-awful Baltimore Arena. She was interested in No Doubt. I really wanted to see Garbage. This is the noise that keeps me awake. They did not disappoint. Uh, that band was extremely tight, which is drumming top-notch. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Josh from Wade, California. Every weekend I listen to your show, but I haven't had anything, added anything new to my collection that's post-85 except for Nirvana. That is now changing. I am going to go out and get the Tin Kings because I love that song that you played about how people call her Jane, but that's not her name. They call me Hell. They call me
messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Thank you.